The reading for today's sermon is in Joshua chapter 21, beginning at the first verse. Then the heads of the fathers' houses of the Levites came to Eleazar the priest and to Joshua the son of Nun and to the heads of the fathers' houses of the tribes of the people of Israel. And they said to them, at Shiloh, in the land of Canaan, the Lord commanded through Moses that we be given cities to dwell in, along with the pasture lands for our livestock. So by command of the Lord, the people of Israel gave to the Levites the following cities and pasture lands out of their inheritance. The lot came out for the clans of the Kohathites, so those Levites who were descendants of Aaron the priest received by lot from the tribes of Judah, Simeon, and Benjamin, 13 cities. And the rest of the Kohathites received by lot from the clans of the tribe of Ephraim, from the tribe of Dan, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, 10 cities. The Gashonites received by lot from the clans of the tribe of Issachar, from the tribe of Asher, and from the tribe of Naphtali, and from the half-tribe of Manasseh in Bashan, 13 cities. The Merarites, according to their clans, received from the tribe of Reuben, the tribe of Gad, and the tribe of Zebulun, 12 cities. These cities and their pasture lands the people of Israel gave by lot to the Levites, as the Lord had commanded through Moses. Out of the tribe of the people of Judah and the tribe of the people of Simeon, They gave the following cities mentioned by name, which went to the descendants of Aaron, one of the clans of the Kohathites who belonged to the people of Levi, since the lot fell to them first. They gave them Kiriath Arba, Arba being the father of Anak, that is Hebron, in the hill country of Judah, along with the pasture lands around it. But the fields of the city and its villages had been given to Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, as his possession. And to the descendants of Aaron, the priest, they gave Hebron, the city of refuge for the manslayer, with its pasture lands, Libna with its pasture lands, Jatir with its pasture lands, Eshtemoa with its pasture lands, Holon with its pasture lands, Debir with its pasture lands, Ain with its pasture lands, Jutta with its pasture lands, Beth Shemesh with its pasture lands. Nine cities out of these two tribes. Then out of the tribe of Benjamin, Gibeon with its pasture lands, Geba with its pasture lands, Anathoth with its pasture lands, and Almon with its pasture lands. Four cities. The cities of the descendants of Aaron, the priests were in all 13 cities with their pasture lands. As to the rest of the Kohathites belonging to the Kohathite clans of the Levites, the cities allotted to them were out of the tribe of Ephraim. To them were given Shechem, the city of refuge for the manslayer, with its pasture lands in the hill country of Ephraim, Giza with its pasture lands, Kibzaim with its pasture lands, Beth Horon with its pasture lands, four cities. And out of the tribe of Jan, Elteke with its pasture lands, Gibbethon with its pasture lands. Ijalon with its pasture lands, Gathrimon with its pasture lands, four cities. And out of the tribe of Manasseh, Tanakh with its pasture lands, and Gathrimon with its pasture lands, two cities. The cities of the clans of the rest of the Kohathites were ten in all with their pasture lands. As to the Gershonites, one of the clans of the Levites were given out of the half tribe of Manasseh, Golon in Bashan with its pasture lands, the city of refuge for the manslayer and Be'esh Terah with its pasture lands, two cities. And out of the tribe of Issachar, Kishion with its pasture lands, Dabarath with its pasture lands, Jarmuth with its pasture lands, Enganim with its pasture lands, four cities. And out of the tribe of Asher, Mishal with its pasture lands, Abdon with its pasture lands, Helkath with its pasture lands, and Rehob with its pasture lands, four cities. And out of the tribe of Naphtali, Kedesh in Galilee with its pasture lands, the city of refuge for the manslayer, Hamath-dor with its pasture lands and Kartan with its pasture lands. Three cities. The cities of the several clans of the Gershonites were in all 13 cities with their pasture lands. And to the rest of the Levites, the Merarite clans, 
were given out of the tribe of Zebulun, Jochnium with its partial lands, Kartar with its partial lands, Dimna with its partial lands, Nahalal with its partial lands, four cities. And out of the tribe of Reuben, Beza with its partial lands, Jahaz with its partial lands, Kedemoth with its partial lands, and Mephath with its partial lands, four cities. And out of the tribe of Gad, Ramoth in Gilead with its partial lands, the city of refuge for the manslayer, Mahanaim with its partial lands, Heshbon with its partial lands, Jazer with its partial lands, four cities in all. As for the cities of the several Merarite clans, that is, the remainder of the clans of Levites, those allotted to them were in all 12 cities. The cities of the Levites, in the midst of the possession of the people of Israel, were in all 48 cities with their pasture lands. These cities each had its pasture lands around it, so it was with all these cities. Thus, the Lord gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give to their fathers. And they took possession of it, and they settled there. And the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their enemies, to their fathers, pardon me. Not one of all their enemies had withstood them, for the Lord had given all their enemies into their hands. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. Let's pray, shall we? Merciful God and Father, not one word of all your promises failed. And not one word has failed. But all have been fulfilled in our Lord Jesus Christ, whose advent we celebrate. And you lay before us such glorious opportunities as those united with Christ, living in the world that belongs to him. And we pray that even now as we explore this ancient and peculiar text from your word, you would teach us many things about how we must faithfully navigate the inheritance that you've placed before us. Help us, we pray. Have mercy upon us. Open our eyes that we may perceive wonderful things in your law. And we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. So as you know, if you've been following our congregational news, if you're a member of the congregation here, certainly you will know that we have reached an exciting stage in our search for additional pastoral staff here at All Saints. We had a number of strong applications. As a session, we've been sifting through resumes and numerous phone calls and Zoom calls. We had three extended in-person interviews with three excellent candidates, and one of them we think is sufficiently outstanding that we're ready to take the next step with him. It's Pastor Jeff Shaw, who lives with his family at present in California. Uh, The next stage will involve him visiting us as a congregation. Beginning of December, he'll be here. He'll preach on the 11th of December. And he'll meet you all. And this will be our opportunity, first for us to seek to discern whether this is the right man to call to serve here alongside Pastor Neil and myself. And then also, of course, for him to figure out whether he wants to move his entire family halfway across the country to come to Texas. Who wouldn't want to do that, obviously? And if all goes well, we will have a few weeks, um, maybe a bit longer, to pray and reflect and to talk with each other before we get to the next stage, which before we can issue a call to this man or any other man, we must vote as a congregation. What that means is that you, you, 
plural, the members of the church here at All Saints have an important role to play in discerning whether this man is the right man for the job here. This is not something which is simply done by the session. It's something which all of us are responsible for. You have to figure out whether he's the right man for the job. Which clearly presupposes something in your understanding of the role that he is candidating for. How could you assess whether somebody is a suitable candidate for a particular post unless you know what that post would involve? Unless you know what the criteria are that he has to meet. We're not trying to figure out whether he supports the same baseball team as you or whether he prefers soccer to the other kind of football that doesn't involve many feet but lots of throwing. I don't know the answer to that question, by the way. I don't really mind because that's not what we're trying to figure out. What we're trying to figure out is, does this man first meet the biblical criteria for pastoral ministry? And then second, of course, does he fit here with the particular needs that we have. And there are many places we might turn in the Scriptures to figure this out. There are some obvious and well-known texts in the New Testament. Uh, just this last week, I released a podcast walking through First uh, Timothy 3 and Titus chapter 1, two of the texts that might immediately spring to our minds when we're thinking about pastoral qualifications. And of course, they're very significant. But they are far from being the only biblical texts that have relevance to the question of what's involved in ordained pastoral ministry. And they're far from being the only texts that we should be reflecting on as we try and work out whether Pastor Shaw is the right man to come here. Among the other texts, in the peculiar and wonderful providence of God that we ought to keep in our minds as we're reflecting on this question is where we'd got to in the book of Joshua. And would you believe it? Joshua chapter 21 speaks very clearly to this question. Now, like so much of the book of Joshua, I mean, it, it's not initially very promising. I don't know how you found that reading. I was um, beginning to wonder how many times I had to say that little phrase, um, with its pasture lands. And I was, you know, when you say the same four words multiple times, so again and again and again, they all sort of blur together and you kind of forget what they mean. And, and sometimes, we've probably found that, haven't we, in the book of Joshua? A few times you've sat there during the reading and you've thought, really? <laughs> really? Yes, really. In God's grace and wisdom, he has buried here treasure which we need to unearth because it seems to me that Joshua chapter 21 may well help us to find the right man for our position here. Just let me begin with a couple of introductory comments just about how this text fits into the overall picture of um, the Scriptures, and also one or two other just brief comments about it. First, this is a text about the Levites, the tribe of Levi, more on them in a second. And according to the Scriptures, there is a connection between the Old Testament Levitical ministry, what the tribe of the Levites did, and the New Testament pastoral ministry. I'm afraid this is widely neglected by many believers who when they're thinking about New Testament things, tend not to think about the Old Testament very much. But in effect, the Levites were the Old Testament pastors. They are the descendants of one of the tribes, one of the sons of Jacob, um, Levi, whose role was to oversee the worship of God at the tabernacle and later the temple and then to teach and to pastor the community. They were the Old Testament pastors. And so we're going to learn a lot about what a New Covenant pastor needs to do by thinking about these guys. Now, they're not exactly the same, 
But some kind of parallel is clearly assumed, for example, by the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 9. He doesn't even bother to argue that there's a parallel. We'll come to that in a few minutes' time when I remind you of what he says there. It's clear that we are to learn about New Covenant pastoral ministry from what these Levites did. And the second point, just briefly, about this text is that this is more than just, what should we say, political geography. This is a list of the cities where the Levites were to live. And they're specified in such a way that it sheds light on what their role was to be. In um, traditional old English villages and towns, you could always easily find the vicar of the parish church. How would you be able to find him? Well, because he lived right next door to the church. It's just how things worked. Because of the particular shape of his ministry, which would be very local to that area, where he lived said a lot about what he was called to do. And so it is with these guys. Where they live and how the scriptures describe where they live shows us a great deal about what the Levites are supposed to do and therefore, frankly, what kind of guy we should be looking for to come here. So, just roughly, you can just, just I'll walk you through the text as quick as I can. Then I've got two very simple points to draw out of it. Just look at it with me. If you've got your Bibles open, that'd be very helpful. First three verses, what happens is that the Levites come to Eliezer and Joshua and all the leaders of the people of Israel and they say, look, Moses promised that we'd get given cities, so how about it? How about we get given what we've been asked, what we've been promised? And, of course... Uh, the people of Israel obeyed the command of the Lord. And then in verses 4 through 8, you've got, um, well, three or four, depending on how you break it down, subgroups of the Levites, each of which are allotted cities in various places. Levi actually had three sons, Kohath, Gershon, and Merari. The Kohathites are sort of split in two because some of them, the descendants of Aaron, who's Kohath's grandson, become priests, and all the rest are Levites. So you've got the Aaronite Kohathites, you with this, right? The non-Aaronite Kohathites, then the Gashonites, then the Merarites. And they're all kind of highlighted in verses 4 through 7, and then you've got verse 8, which summarizes it. And then verses 9, all the way through, almost to the end, what it does is it goes through each tribe one at a time and says, well, this tribe gave those cities, and this tribe gave those cities. And they're all specified precisely and in great detail before you get right to the end. And this is actually the climax of the whole of this section of the book of Joshua, before the final section beginning in chapter 22. Verse 43, thus the Lord gave Israel all the land that he swore to give them to their fathers, and they took possession of it. And that job isn't complete until the Levites' inheritance has been allocated. It's as though getting the pastoral staff right is the final piece in the jigsaw puzzle for the people to flourish. Can you see how it's presented? Everything else is sorted out. Everything else has got their homes. There's just these Levites wandering around. Well, who cares? Who needs Levites? No, no, we do need the Levites. They need to be placed in their homes, in their towns, all ready to function well. Thus, the Lord will give rest to his people. So it's quite a significant moment. And there are two really simple observations I want to share with you that seem to me to just be obvious given this text. And and we'll see that there are some less obvious details once we dig into them. First, the Levites were given cities. They weren't given land. They were given cities. And then the second thing is they were scattered everywhere. They weren't in one place like the other tribes. They're scattered all through the land. And as we explore those details, I think the Lord might have some surprises for us. So first, the Levites received cities. Just look with me, verse 2. They said to them at Shiloh in the land of Canaan, this is the Levites, the, the representative leaders of the Levites speaking to the people of Israel and to their leaders, 
The Lord commanded through Moses that we be given cities to dwell in, along with their pasture lands, a little bit of land around it. I'll explain what's going on with that in a few minutes. Each tribe is given cities. They're not given a large area of inheritance like the other tribes are given. And then down in verse 41, the cities of the Levites in the midst of the possession of the people of Israel were in all 48 cities with their pasture lands. These cities each had its pasture lands around it. So it was with all these cities. You see the emphasis? Cities, cities, cities. Like, this is not the same as every other tribe where they get a little patch of territory. They're given individual urban areas towns or cities to live in. Now, why? Well, it's possible that verse 41 might be more significant than any of us realize. How many cities were there altogether? 48. Now, we are used to discovering in the book of Joshua that numbers have a kind of symbolic significance. This, I think, is somewhat speculative, but I don't think it's wrong in the underlying point that I want to make. Uh, 48 is obviously, if you're an Israelite, 4 times 12, because the number you're all thinking of is 12, because 12 tribes. So it's 4 times 12, right. 4, elsewhere in Joshua already, has been a picture of the four corners of the world, the four corners of the land. Whereas 12, of course, is the people of Israel. So what are the Levites exactly? Well, they are the people who take the 12 out to the 4, perhaps. Is it possible that even in the number of cities they're given is encoded the vocation of the people of Israel? God did not say to Abraham, I will make you a father of one nation. He said, I will make you a father of many nations. Your calling as a people is to spread the news, which Galatians calls the gospel preached in advance to Abraham, that Through you, all the nations of the world can be blessed. And is it possible that in these 48 are buried the the subtle hint that they are to be exemplars or they are to take the lead in showing how the 12 tribes of Israel go to the four corners of the world, which is why there are 48 cities for them? Maybe. It certainly fits with Genesis 12, doesn't it? All the nations on earth shall be blessed through you. And it certainly fits with what a pastor is supposed to do. A pastor is not supposed to do everything. Sorry. (laughs) Which is kind of a relief, really, uh, that pastors are not called to do everything. But pastors are supposed to exemplify the mission of the people of God. We are looking for a third member of our pastoral staff who will, so to speak, carry forward our mission in his life actually in his family's life as well, which is why there are qualifications not just for the man himself, but for his wife and children. We're looking for somebody who we can look to and say, yeah, that man lives out what we are about. But there's a second reason why the Levites received this kind of inheritance. The Levites were to give a single-minded wholehearted, undistracted devotion to their duty. Think about the life of every other tribe. You've just been given this glorious inheritance. Hundreds of thousands of acres of pasture land, all ready for you to bring livestock to, or arable land for you to sow crops on, and you've got, you've got work to do. You're going to be devoting yourself to working for your living. It's true the Levites got pasture lands, 
But that's a tiny little patch of area, and I'll show you just how tiny in a couple of seconds when, you, when we look into another aspect of the, the calling of the Levites and our response to them. But the Levites were not farmers. Those little pasture lands were for you know, a few goats here and there. The reason they're not farmers is because they're ministers. They're servants of the Lord. They're servants of his people. They're teachers and pastors. And what we're looking for in a Levite then is a man who has the character of wanting to be undistractedly devoted to the service of the Lord. It's important to make some clarifications here. It's not that other vocations are less worthy. You've heard Pastor Neil and me say many, many times that one of the great rediscoveries of the Reformation was the glorious dignity of every different vocation. Every secular so-called vocation, teachers and shoemakers and blacksmiths and airline pilots and soldiers and everything else. But Levites were called to, so to speak, put those things aside. We want a man who's going to focus on this job. It actually reflects the kind of thing that Paul says in um, his letters to Timothy. And it's really stirring. I, mean, I, I suspect this is the kind of thing that uh, our candidate, Pastor Shaw, will have spent a considerable amount of time over his life reflecting on. Um, I remember before I was uh, ordained, spending the night before um, just reading through the pastorals and swallowing hard every few minutes as you realize what it is that a pastor is called to do. I mean, just, just hear what um, Paul says to Timothy. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits. Not because civilian pursuits are a bad idea. We need civilians, but we need soldiers. Soldiers of the Lord. 1 Timothy 4 Verse 13, Paul's left Timothy on his own. Here's the test of what the man will be like. When I'm not with you, when there's nobody clocking you in and clocking you out and working out how many hours a day you're working, Timothy, what kind of a pastor are you going to be? Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and to teaching. Don't neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Let me tell you, after a few years of, of um, preaching and teaching, you get to a point where you can just knock them out, actually. School teachers, you know this. The first time you stand up to teach a class full of students, how many hours did you put into preparing that? Like, how many dozen hours did you put in preparing that? Yeah, the kind of fear drives you, doesn't it? But you get to a point where, you know, you, you've got some kind of your stock of illustrations and you're pretty sure that people have forgotten them from six months ago, so you can just sort of roll them out again. And it's, no, no, no. We, we want somebody who's going to fan into flame that gift, whether it's public teaching and preaching or whether it's the devoted, prayerful, one-to-one counselling and personal ministry, praying with and for the congregation. And other places, uh, 2 Timothy 4, I, this is the one, I can still see the look in my old friend Richard Cokin's eyes. He's the first, um, the first senior pastor I ever worked for, so to speak. He was the senior pastor of a church where I interned back in 2000. And he looked across the table at about half a dozen of us, all trainee pastors, as he said, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Now, 
Not get yourself a cushy job, sit behind a desk, no heavy lifting, drift through, wait for retirement. It's not what we want, gentlemen. It's not what we want from a servant of the Lord and of this congregation here at All Saints. Of course, there's a corollary to all this. If the Levites are not farmers because their income is provided by the rest of the people, that means that their income is provided by the rest of the people. Uh, Not to put too sharp a point on it, um, the other tribes had a very different role from the Levites at this stage in Israel's history. Um, The other tribes go and fight for their inheritance. The other tribes go and work the land. Now, the Levites, well, they're certainly fighters. Actually, they're preeminently fighters. They're probably the most aggressive, fierce fighters of all. Just think back to um, the reputation they got themselves in Exodus 32, where they took up the sword against the unfaithfulness and idolatry of their fellow Israelites. But here, they're relying on other people to fight for those cities and to earn them their daily bread. I was intrigued by this. The, the um, pasture lands around these cities, you notice how many times that's mentioned? All of these 48 cities have a region of pasture land around it. And if you look back in Numbers 35, you discover how much space they had. Each city basically sat in the middle of a square of land that was 2,000 cubits along each edge. So you do the math, it's about 1.3 square miles. It's about 800 and something acres. And I thought, I wonder how many people you could support on a ranch of 800 acres. So I went to, where is he? Uh, Mr. Haskell. It's a conversation with Mr. Haskell this morning. So uh, how, how many people do you think you could support on 800 acres? Well, the answer is not that you could support the entire tribe of Levi. In, in really, really good um, fertile conditions, apparently, and this is Mr. Haskell, you can ask him about this. If you have really good fertile conditions, you can have one acre of ground and one cow. I mean, as soon as it has a calf, you need two acres. But roughly one or two acres of ground per, per cow, pasture land. In less good conditions, it's six or seven acres. This is some parts of West Texas where it's like 40 acres for a single cow because the, the ground is so poor. Parts of Israel will be like that. Each of these cities of the Levites is going to have 450-odd people in it from the beginning, if you look at the census data in the book of Numbers. And that population is going to grow steadily throughout the years ahead. There's no way you can begin to support a tenth of the population of Levi from these pasture lands in the early days. And there's no way on earth that you can support them permanently in the long term. So where's their income going to come from? It is going to come in the same way the cities come. The scriptures teach that the congregation of Israel is responsible for tithing to provide for the Levites. This is actually exactly the principle that Paul picks up in 1 Corinthians 9, where he's saying, what's the parallel between the Old Covenant Levites and the New Covenant pastoral ministry? He says, don't those who serve at the altar get their food from the altar? In the same way, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should get their living from the gospel. So my question for you all today is, are you ready to pay a third pastor? Not supposed to be a nasty question. (laughs) Honest. Just an honest question. This is not really news to us, obviously. I mean, all of you who are members here made this pledge in your membership vows. But can you imagine the situation? Just cast your mind back to ancient Israel. Imagine the situation. You're settling down in in the tribe of Asher and you've got your town. You think, oh, we need to get a Levite from somewhere. And you find this guy. Look, he's, he's good. He's a Levite. He's really mature and faithful, godly family, lovely guy, great teacher, 
caring pastor, ready to give himself 100%. Would you come and be our Levite with us? We've got, well, he's like, okay, I'd love to. It'd be an honor to serve you. And he, and he gets there and he's like, um, so I uh, just, just wondered if I could ask, um, where would you like me to live? And they're like, um, oh yeah. And while you're figuring that out, can, can you tell me how I'm going to get food for my children? And you're like, yeah, well, that ho- the whole tithing thing, we're kind of working towards it. You know how many times I've heard that? If you are working towards tithing, you are not yet ready for a third pastor. In fact, if you're working towards tithing, you're not yet ready for the two you have. Pastor Short, I don't know how many people in the congregation here tithe. I deliberately don't have access to anybody's financial information. I don't want to know. Uh, And so don't ask me about this, but I do suggest, please, that when you're here in two or three weeks' time, that you sit down at some point with Elder Capone and or Elder Douglas, and you just simply ask them, is this a tithing congregation? You don't need to know the details, I take it, neither do do I, Um, but you just need a simple yes or no, and if the answer is no, please don't come. Do not come if it's not the case that the congregation is ready to support you and your family. Let me tell you, that's the question I asked. And I came. So I'll let you infer from that what you will. Uh, It's actually been a wonderful uh, relief, I'll be honest, to know that... um, my family and I are loved here, not just in words, but in deeds. You know, the kids got to have shoes. <laughs> um, it, interesting, though, it, if you read the church planting literature, and there's a fair literature on church planting and church growth literature in general, one of the problems that um, church planters have to try and solve is that as the church grows, the giving never keeps up with the growth in the congregation. Now, that's not to say it never does in any particular congregation. It would be more accurate to say that on average, on average, across many different congregations, as the congregation size increases, the giving increases but more slowly. Now, part of that is simply because um, it takes people a while to get round to it. But another part of that, and this is evidenced by the fact that the, the ratio never catches up in the end, is presumably because... What you've got when a congregation starts out, especially a small church plant, is you've got 110% commitment because no congregation is ever starting out without 110% commitment. But as the congregation grows, yeah, it's just a nice place to come. This is a wonderful church to join. And frankly, a lower level of commitment is required in order to join, just in practical terms. Well, uh, if we want a Levite to come here, and devote himself, pour himself out for us, then we need to be ready to provide for him. Second, and more briefly, the Levites, again, unlike the other tribes of Israel, were not gathered together all in one place. They were scattered around. I resisted the temptation to get Mrs. Loki to print that map again for you. I think you probably all got it imprinted on your eyeballs. Um, But remember the map of Israel's uh, initial conquest inheritances that you've seen a few times if you've been here in the last few months during the book of Joshua, we get to this point. Um, You remember that all the other tribes have like a patch of land 
much like most of the American states have in America. It's not like Alaska, not like Michigan, but like most of them, it's just like a little area. All the Texans are in Texas. Can I get an amen? Um, or yeehaw, whichever you prefer. Um, but it's not like that with the Levites. Um, they're scattered. Now, initially, the, the background to this is interesting. Initially, the scattering was a curse because of the violence of the Levites at, um, uh, against the sons of Hamor, Shechem and the sons of Hamor in Genesis 34, which in Genesis 49 becomes a curse. You're going to be scattered in Israel. But because of Levi's zeal and faithfulness to the Lord after the golden calf incident with the idolatry at uh, the people committed while Moses is still up the mountain, they took their swords and they put to death the idolaters. Because of their commitment to the Lord, the scattering remained, but it was turned into a blessing. So now, Levi is scattered throughout Israel as a blessing to the people of God. Now, there are two implications that I can think of concerning the, what this means for the the ministry of the Levites. One is pretty obvious, I'll come to that in a sec, but there's also a less obvious one. I want to start with the less obvious one first. This scattering into cities all over the land helps the Levites to administer aspects of their discipleship and discipline justly. Let me explain what I mean by that. It's all to do with the location of the cities of refuge. If you look in the previous chapter, chapter 20, you've got six cities of refuge designated throughout Israel. And you remember the purpose of this? The aim is if somebody accidentally causes the death of another person, manslaughter we might call it, um, he might fear for his life because the avenger of blood, so-called, one of the family members of the, the deceased person, could come chasing after him. So where would he flee? Answer is you flee to a city of refuge. The city of refuge is a place where you would present your case, and if you're actually not guilty of murder, you'd be protected there and kept safe there. And that's what the, uh, that's what the cities of refuge were for. Now, here's a question. Where are you going to put the cities of refuge? Because wherever you put them, you've got to trust the inhabitants of those places to administer justice fairly. And you can't just put them all in one tribal inheritance. If you put them all in one tribal inheritance, then well, anybody who offends against somebody in that tribe is likely to find themselves in trouble. And moreover, you're too far away from most of the land of Israel. There wouldn't be time for you to get to those places um, if they're all in one place. So what you want to do is you scatter them around. You want all these six cities of refuge scattered around all over the land of Israel as they are, which means that you've always got somewhere reasonably close if you find yourself in that strange and awkward position of needing it where you could flee to. But you've still got the question of, what happens when you arrive at the gates? Imagine, you're a Judahite, happened to be traveling through the tribal inheritance of Asher, and some terrible accident happened, in consequence of which an Asherite was injured or even killed. You'd flee to the city of refuge, and you would find greeting you at the gates there. Who exactly? Oh, Asherites. Not ideal. If you want to help people to resist their natural temptation towards bias to their own clan. So what you do is you make almost all of the cities of refuge into Levitical cities so that wherever you're going, the likelihood is that the reason that you're going there is not because you've offended somebody from that tribe. And that's actually, if you look at the details, five of the cities specified in chapter 20 are actually mentioned as Levitical cities in chapter 21. 
five, not six, because, well, what happens if something happens and you've injured a Levite? You need to be able to go to the other place. And the other, the final sixth city of refuge is Beza. It's in the, the inheritance of Reuben. Obviously, it's going to be really close to where the Levites mainly work, down in Jerusalem, which the, the um, tribal inheritance of Reuben is, but it's across the river. Makes it safer, you see? So the whole structure of these cities of refuge, where they're located, is designed to make it most likely that if you find yourself in need of taking refuge there, you will get a fair hearing, you'll be able to get to one, and you'll be safe there. But it relies on one thing. Who's waiting at the gates? No amount of geographical tinkering is going to help you if the Levites are corrupt. No amount of protection against bias from this one tribe will help you if this tribe, the Levites, are ungodly and open to manipulation. So a Levite must, in those, we pray, rare circumstances, when those ministries were needed, be absolutely above reproach in the administration of justice. And you find this kind of principle echoed throughout the biblical requirements for pastoral ministry. There are sometimes, tragically, occasions for the more serious kinds of church discipline. And you do not want, as a pastor, a man given to favours and backhanders and lack of integrity. Neither do you want somebody who's so naive that he just believes the first person who comes to him. Um, we, we are in a... Well, what's the phrase to use? Total pig's breakfast in the Western world in the administration of justice because it's... Uh, it, you either say, believe all women, or you're a misogynist. It's like, well, no, no, how about neither of those? How about just? How about not being partial to the poor or the wealthy, to the small or the great? How about being a man of integrity? More commonly, actually, it's just in the everyday affairs of the life of the church. It, it is a temptation that pastors face to hear more loudly the desires of influential people, wealthy people. And we mustn't do that. We must be men who are not partial against those who are of little account in the world. And Scripture doesn't hide this from us. In fact, it requires it of these Levites, and the whole of Israelite society is going to fall to pieces if they don't have that characteristic. Finally, just briefly, what's the most obvious positive benefit of having Levites everywhere? What do you want your pastor to be like, really, really? Do you want a guy who sort of flies in, sort of airlifted into the pulpit, dropped in here, preaches, and then it sort of disappears out? I, I'm sorry to say there are churches like that. There are certainly churches like that in London, where I've served in the past. There are churches like that in America where nobody knows their pastor. Don't you want a pastor who is the kind of guy who wants to get to know you? He's glad he's able to live near enough to you to spend time with you. One of the gifts on the lists of pastoral qualifications in 1 Timothy and Titus is hospitality. The kind of man who lives among the congregation. It always reminds me of what Paul says in, um, in 1 Thessalonians. Um, when he talks about, we were, we were gentle among you, like a mother with her children. 
we shared with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves. I have to say, I'm going to embarrass Pastor Neil now, I've been um, repeatedly struck by Pastor Neil's personal, devoted attention to you. It was obvious from before I even came here, when we met and a year before my family and I came here. It was obvious, his love for the congregation. And I've been really challenged by that. Challenged to try to emulate it. We need a man who will join us in doing the best we can to be among the people. Not just to preach from on high, but to be with you. We want an Advent pastor, don't we? A pastor like Jesus. Who didn't remain far off. Who didn't remain aloof. A pastor who came close. A shepherd. The good shepherd. Who came close. Who poured out his life. Single-mindedly devoted to his people. So that he might snatch many souls from hell and destruction. Many sheep gathered in his arms. We want an Advent pastor. A pastor like Jesus. Who will join with us and with all of you in seeking to gather you together and draw us all towards greater maturity in Christ. It's interesting, when you look at um, where the cities came from, I, I didn't even go into the numbers, but you notice that one of the tribes, or one pair of the tribes, Judah and Simeon, gave rather more than everybody else. Most of the tribes gave four, three in the case of Naphtali. Simeon and Judah gave nine cities. And you're like, nine? I wonder where they came from. Look at the geography. One of those cities comes from Simeon. The other eight, they come from Judah. And you already know which tribe the Messiah is going to come from, don't you? Let's pray. Gracious and merciful Father, you have shepherded us for many years. Please would you continue to do so by bringing a man here to serve alongside Pastor Neil and me in this glorious privilege of uh, living and uh, pastoring among the saints here at All Saints. Bring a man, we pray, who will give himself like Jesus gave himself. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.